Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? So what does mean what does it mean to MC a memorial? <laughs> yeah, I mean I don't know what to call it. I, I people keep host I'm not hosting because the family's hosting. So what it means is that I'm trusted, I think, to not well, one, I've done this twice. You know, I've lost both my parents, so I like know the drill about how memorials go. But also I think I'm kind of a safe person in that. I will step in if someone goes caca cuckoo at the memorial. And I also have some, you know, able, like, uh, presenting skills. Yes. Right. And um, I'm entrusted to, like, guide the ship. if it And if it goes off kilter, I will say to somebody, hey, why don't you have a seat? This is like, we'll have time for this later if you really want to get crazy or whatever. But that's, and I think it's just sort of steering, steering the grief ship. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, look, I, I like don't know. That. It's no. gonna be interesting, dude. People, oh, honestly, they should have that for you know in other cultures where they have like professional grievers and professional mourners. It, it sounds a little silly, but at the same time, it's like no, this is right because no, we don't. We never know how to do it unless you've lived in a really communal environment where you 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 always you know you attend the rites, the ceremonies, the rituals of everybody in your village then you really don't know until usually until it's thrust upon you. And then it's like, well, you're supposed to be grieving and then like hosting a memorial service. It's such a weird thing. So this could be another career path for you. You could be a professional, you know, funeral MC. I actually, honestly, I hate, I don't hate it. I love it. Well, it also could be my, thank you. My rap name, funeral MC, <laughs> instead of like young MC, funeral MC. But no, yeah, I, uh, I have no, and it's so interesting when it's not my own family, right? Like these are family friends, but they're not, it's not my mother who died. I don't have the attachment to I um, people doing and saying certain things. I don't feel triggered like being, I grew up a lot in this house that I'm sitting in right now, but it's not my, it was not my house. So I don't have any attachment emotionally uh, like appendages to the items in the house where the girls do. So I'm able to be here and, and, and be like, this is, this is, I'm okay here. Mm-hmm. I don't feel overwhelmed. And I think that is a sign that I'm doing the right thing in terms of helping out in this way. If I got here and I was like, Oh my God, it's too much, but I don't feel that. And I also think that like one of the things that I, did with Nancy and Dave over the last couple of years is like they were literally the only adults well I'm an adult only older adults my parents age who were like yes go to California you need to get out of here get away from this they were the so I that made me trust them and then we see we had like weekly phone conversations just like they would each be on a line. It was hilarious. And we would talk for hours, like maybe once every two weeks, a couple hours. And it was really like a, a parenting experience. So uh, I feel very close to them. And I, what I'm learning is that like, even if other people have different relationships with people, you can have your own. So 
Yeah, I know that yes. no one's perfect, but these were allowed. Like you're allowed, Gina, to have your own relationship with your mom and with your even dead people than other people have. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, back to the plane for a minute. When you are in these situations, what do the flight attendants do, if anything? Oh, uh, well, I always talk to them before because I, so what I say, I always like to, because Dave, who's, who's a hypnotherapist and a psychologist, he said, listen, you know, he used to be afraid and he said his thing was talking to the flight attendants before and just saying like, hey, I have a phobia. I'm a therapist. I'm working through it. Like just to make contact, right? I don't, I didn't say that exactly, but what I said was, listen, I say, hi, how are you? We struck up a, struck up a teeny conversation in that moment where I'm going to my seat and I say, listen, I'm going to Chicago to like MC a memorial for like someone who's like my mom. So if you see me, so if you see me crying, like it's normal. And they were like, oh, thanks for telling me. And they they usually don't get freaked out. I'm also not like intense about it. Um, they do nothing. And you know what? They, I think, and she said, Thanks for telling me. I really appreciate it because I think they'd rather know what the fuck is going on with someone than thinking someone is about to hijack the goddamn plane. Exactly. I was thinking that exact same thing. I was thinking like, especially right now, all they know is it's heightened emotion or it's not, you know, like they, they, they have, they would have no way of differentiating, you know, what's, what's safe and what's dangerous. So I can't believe nobody's ever done this before, but we, another project that we could do is like, Airplane stories, I mean, there is such, this is one of the few points of connection that humanity still has, people, that is, who can afford to let you fly a plane anywhere. But this thing of like, it sucks, and it's dirty, and it's gross, and people people's, you know, hygiene comes into question if they're sitting next to you and it's uncomfortable and it's not the glamorous thing that it used to be even when we were kids. Um, so it's, it's one of those moments, unless you have a private plane where you're sort of forced to reckon with like the same thing that everybody else in humanity has to reckon with, but even on a private plane, and I would argue even especially on a private plane, there is the fear of your imminent death. Like, the, the, it yes, doesn't matter yes. if you're afraid of flying or not. You have, it, it crosses your mind. Well, yeah. And I, my whole thing is like, I, I don't know what would happen if we all started talking about that on a plane. So like, what would that be like? So, okay. When I was traveling last with home from uh, San Francisco with Miles, I sat next to this woman. Miles is in the middle and the woman on the aisle was this woman. We were both afraid. And we had this idea for a freaking television show, right? Which was two, it's called The Fearful Flyers. And then two people on each side and a famous person in the middle seat. And we would interview them as we flew to one take our mind off it but to really delve into our own fear and did the person have any fear and get to know a celebrity at the same time now she never texted me back (laughs) so she's not clear clearly she's not that interested because i was like into it i was like what if we could get so unforgiving i i know I know. And she's not even in the industry. She's like, so, but I was like, Hey, fearful flyer friend. I think we should talk about our idea. Crickets, radio silence. So whatever. She's moved on. Like she just used me for the the entertainment, which is fine. Heightened emotional space. She, she bonded with you, but now she's back to like all of her armor and all of her gear. And she doesn't want to think about flying until she has to. No. Right. 
Right, exactly. It's not something that she wants to delve into on her free time, you know? So, which I don't blame her. But anyway, so yeah, it's an interesting thing. Like, I literally, I sit out the window, I sit by the window, and I have to look out the window, and this guy next to me who I met, um, um, who's like a vet, and who is, like, was self-medicating with alcohol, and who is a gay vet, it was really interesting. But he, everyone copes differently, but it was in, at one point I thought, oh, I actually don't want to be distracted by him because I'm really doing some deep work with myself as I look out the window. And also your version of like getting through this experience, I it does not feel safe to me, which is drinking and like just I cannot distract myself. People are like, oh, read a book. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? That's like telling someone. I don't know, who's having a seizure to read a book. Like, you, you, it's not going to work, right? I look out the window and and do therapy with myself. That is what I do. I love it. That's great. I think everybody who is listening to this who has any kind of fear or intimidation around flying should, should do that. I don't know if you were getting to this, but I thought you were going to say something about, like, how... Oh, you said, you said, what if we all talked about it? Now, every positive communal experience with the exception of theater that I've ever had, I've gone into unwillingly at the beginning and, you know, sort of rejecting it and then come out the other side, like, that was amazing. You know, the, the thing that you experience, the communal thing, the thing of like, we're all in this together, which we are all like, so actually parched for, but we, people like me would never really kind of actively sort of approach it. It has to be thrust upon me, these like healing group experiences, but amen. In fact, they could make a whole airline that is sort of about that. Like this is, you know, this is the emotional express. Like this is where we're going to talk about our fear of flying because everybody's crying in airplanes too. Being in the actual airplane does something to you that makes everybody much more vulnerable than they are otherwise. It's so crazy. I agree. It could be emotional express and you could deal with it. But you would know getting on this plane, like people are going to talk about their feelings and you shouldn't get on it. So the guy in the aisle <laughs> no, yesterday. No was alcohol. A, no alcohol. Oh, yeah. No alcohol. The guy on the aisle, like, hated everything about the flight, right? He was, like, shaking his head. He was annoyed. But then... He had a Harvard sweatshirt on. I was like, oh, my God. But <clears throat> he was like middle-aged guy, like coding or I don't know what he was doing. But he like hated everything. He shook his head when they told him to like put his bag under the seat. I'm like, listen, you know what's going on here. This is not your first time on an airplane. Why are you shaking your head? But okay. But then he said something that was hilarious. And I said, I'm going to put that in a script, which, which was – I don't even know what he was responding to. It was probably my seatmate saying something. But he said, listen, it's not ideal. But nobody asked me. <laughs> and, I, I'm gonna, and I said to him, I said, listen, I am going to put that in a script. Like the mother-in-law is meeting her future daughter-in-law and, and says, listen, she's not ideal. But nobody asked nobody. me. And he laughed. And then he said, it's true. And I said, yeah, I know it's true. That's why. And so then he was like, then he was like free to talk about his disgruntledness, which was fine. Cause then it was like, he was more human, but I, he was hilarious. He was like the, like he's one of those people that like during, and it was really turbulent at one point. And I was like, okay, here we go. It's turbulent. It's part of the deal. It's okay, fine. And, um, he was like, just like angry at the turbulence. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. I'm like, but like, 
are you angry at? Just like the turbulence. And he was like, oh, and like, angry I, I couldn't flow. understand. I don't know. Angry if was, air current. He was like pissed off. I was laughing. I was like, this guy's awesome. He just hates everything. I said, it's not ideal, but nobody asked me. So what's so great about that. And so what's so great about you is like, you engage that's how you always engage people from this perspective of like yeah whatever is going on with you that you think is like nobody else wants to hear about I want to hear about it because that's because that's what you spend your time doing you know bravely engaging with yourself they we need a person like you in all of these sort of like high stress situations that people have to do you usually at some point in your life you have to get on an airplane usually at some point in your life you you have to speak you know in front of a group of people you have to have a funeral we need these Sherpas, these guides to kind of give us, basically just give us permission to have our own human experience that we have somehow talked ourselves out of having, even though it's completely unavoidable. Yeah. And I also really respect people who now who have to just, I mean, I, it's not my way, but like shut down and they're like, nope, I'm just gonna, they can do it. They're like, either it's drinking or whatever it is to distract themselves. They're like in it, whether it's the disgruntledness or other people, they're like, just go to sleep immediately. They like sit down and they're like out. And I don't think it's relaxation. I think they're just like checked. Oh like, yeah, I have no, to they're like, I, I cannot be conscious right now. I wonder what makes the difference between people who are afraid of flying and not. I have never once felt afraid of flying. I, even during turbulence, I've never once had the thought like this plane is going down. I mean, maybe that changed a little bit when I had kids and I was always the one in the aisle, like holding, I had to hold my babies the entire flight because, because it must be a natural thing to be freaked the fuck out, to be on an airplane. Even a baby freaks out to be on an airplane. So there's something to it. But what makes the difference between people who just, I've never had that fear. I, I know it is a foreign, it is like, it is, I don't know either. And I, 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 there's other people like that have, what was the fear someone was talking about the other day? Oh, I have a friend who like literally cannot have their blood drawn. They have to go under almost. Wow. They almost have to be sedated to have their blood drawn. Me, I, I stick out my arm. I don't give a, I, it's just not my yeah. thing. I don't have any charge at it at all. Well, I, you could take my blood right now. I used to have this theory that you grew up afraid of the things that your parents basically were afraid of so that they re therefore communicated to be afraid of. But th I, that I now think that that's completely untrue. My daughter is scared to death of spiders she she's haunted by this fear that when she goes into the bathroom at night, there's going to be a spider. If there's the tiniest, and we live in the woods, there's, there's all kinds of insects that make that their way into our house. I have, there's not a spider I've ever encountered that I've been afraid of. Now mice and rats, that's what I'm afraid of. My mom was afraid of snakes. She did not transfer. When I was younger, I felt afraid of them too. And then one day I was like, I think it's fine. Yeah. I don't think I have any quarrel with these takes, actually. I think it's completely right. fine. So um, I I don't, so it's something inherent in us that identifies an object. I think it's maybe like we, I, for whatever reason, this becomes the object of all of your fears. And it could be a spider. It could be a plane. It could be, you know, clowns. Like it's for a lot, for a lot of people, it's oh, clowns. remember... Okay, Larry Bates, who we went to school with, and he's open, I think, about this. Yeah, he is, because he's, he's talked about it. I He had a fear of Muppets. 
like an intense Muppet fear. And I was like, wait, are you? I thought it was a joke. I was like, wait, Muppets? Like, okay, they're a little weird, but like, but like a phobia of a Muppet. And I was like, what the actual fuck? I couldn't, like, I just, that's, it's not. Dude, my version of that is I was afraid of mariachi bands. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so mariachi bands? Yes. Like bands. Yeah. Well, so growing, growing up in, well, we love Mexican food, so we were always going out for Mexican food. And back then, I don't know why, every time you went to have Mexican food, you know, dinner, there was a mariachi band. Like, I I, it does, I haven't seen a mariachi band in such a long time, but it used to be <laughs> that you could not go out for a Mexican restaurant dinner without a mariachi band. And I, it got to a point where they couldn't, first it was like, we can't go to have Mexican food anymore. That was like, we can't go to a restaurant. I just, I didn't want these mariachis. And it must have just, I think it was the bigness of the hat and the loudness of the music right next to your table. <laughs> when you think about it, it's actually so it's, it's strange, a, yeah. right? Yeah. That you're sitting well, at your yeah. table, like with your family looking, you know, whether you're going to order the chalupa or the enchilada. And then it's just like extremely loud, very good, but extremely loud and, and in huge presence, people sitting, you know, right next to your table. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really make a lot of sense as a business <laughs> move either. Like what, why it would like, it would like make people, unless you're drunk again, if there's alcohol involved, it changes everything, but you can't really drink as a toddler. So, but I think that like, Maybe there's something, I wonder if there's something about that of like all the attention being on you. Like, listen, when there's like, there are kids I know at restaurants when they, when it's their birthday and they come over to sing that they fucking hate it. It's too much attention on them and adults too. And I can kind of understand that it's like too much pressure, right? There's like a pressure. Well, you just unlocked it for me. Now I know exactly what it is. You said something about being drunk. And I think at that age, I have always equated loud and raucous with drunk you know as a kid I knew when anybody in my family was being loud raucous and 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 actually I'm sorry to say even especially when they were having fun when I'm in a room when I'm in a house and everybody's laughing you know my it's like I, I I I just get that fear I just get that fear sort of rise up it's different now that I'm older and I've you know been in more situations where that hasn't been scary to me but that's what it was with the mariachis the loud and the festive and the music meant like somebody's going to say something that they really regret somebody's going to get a DUI somebody's going to jail hey let me run this by you to run by you today given that it is um halloween season and this episode will air the day after halloween but um so i you know well actually no okay i'll I'll start with this um i am one of those people that desperately seeks paranormal experiences and i'm almost always disappointed when i'm when i'm actively seeking it going to a psychic, going to a medium, going to, it's, oh, you know, it's, I'm never the one in the crowd where the medium goes like, I've got a message for you. <laughs> and I've, I've gotten to the point where I'm like, my family's like, just not that into me. They don't want to, you know, the people who've passed over, like, don't want to, don't want to come talk to me. Don't want to give me messages. But I, I, if you're out there, if you're listening, 
ancestors, uh, drop a line. I'd love to know what the deal is. I'd love to know what messages you might have for me, because I actually really do believe that that can happen. Maybe it just needs to happen with people who are on a higher spiritual plane than any of them. No, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't believe that for a second. I mean, it could be true. What do I know? But I think, look, I do believe, right, that most shit happens when you're not expecting it. Paranormal or not. Like, all the shit that has happened to me, most of it has been not at all when I would have planned or thought or... And so I have one ghost story. I don't know if you know it. It happened in Great Barrington. Do you know this story? Yes. But tell it again. It's a great story. Okay. Okay. I could care... I was like 21. All I wanted was to be skinny and have boys like me. I didn't give a fuck about ghosts. I didn't care about anything. So I'm in Great Barrington in Edith Wharton's, the old lady author's house. And I'm the stage manager. And this guy I was in love with was in this play that took place, The Monkey's Paw, took place in, the, they were doing an adaptation of The Monkey's Paw in Edith Wharton's parlor on Halloween. It was like the creepiest thing, but I didn't give a fuck because and I was in love with the guy like, who was in. haunted. Yes. 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 Super, super Berkshire's. Whatever. I didn't care. I was like, I, I want to I want this guy to like me. I don't give a fuck about any of that. Okay. So I, my job was to literally move the furniture after the rehearsal to the storage room. Okay. In this big mansion. Okay, fine. They're getting notes and I'm just probably daydreaming about how I can make this guy like me. And I'm moving furniture and I go into this little storage room. And of course people talk about the house is so big and haunted. I could care less. So I'm in there and down the road from the house is a barn where they're doing the play Ethan Frome. And okay, Ethan Frome, there's like a sledding accident in the play. So he's on a sled and they start screaming and the guy is hurt. So another show was going on at the in the barn. And I'm like, ah, okay. So I'm moving the furniture and I hear the sled yelling. And okay, I'm like, should they, I wish they would shut up. It was like this loud yelling. So then I we finish our rehearsal and we're walking out back, me and the cute guy and some other people. And all I'm thinking about is how can I get this guy to like me and um, like literally. And also now I see pictures of him and I'm like, dear God. <laughs> anyway, so, so, oh, my God. Why didn't someone, I mean, you should, someone should have just slapped me uh, like 10 times and been like, no. But anyway, but that's what I was. I was all about him. I had a thing for Canadians. Anyway, so, so like I just loved the guys. That was like international to me, Canadians. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so it was like all the Canadians. So we're walking in the dark to our cars, and um, <clears throat> and I say, and we walk by the barn, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys, they were so loud tonight when I was moving the furniture. Like, they should shut up. Like, I, I wonder how it's going to be when we're doing the Monkey's Paw show. We're going to hear Ethan Frome. And like, every, it was like four of us. Everyone stopped. And I'm like, what? What's wrong with you two? Or three or whatever. And they were like, like turned white. I've never seen this happen in human beings. And I was like, what is happening? I thought I said something wrong or like, of course, like I was bad. And I'm like, what? And they're like, oh, God. And I was like, what? What are you punking me? What's happening? And they're like, there was no show tonight. Ooh, even though I and knew I said, that was coming what? in the story, it still gave me a chill. Today, 
today on the podcast, we are talking to Tina Parker. Yes, Tina Parker, the one and only Francesca Liddy from the smash hit series, critically acclaimed and me acclaimed, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. Tina's a delight. She's a director. She directs for theater. She's got a theater company in Dallas, Texas called Kitchen Dog. And she was so much fun to talk to. And I just know you are going to love our conversation with Tina Parker. Okay, well, I want to get all into Kitchen Dog, but I've got to start first by saying congratulations, Tina Parker. You survived theater school. (laughs) (laughs) So long ago, my Lord. So long ago. I I have no doubt that, you know, the ripple, we've learned, it doesn't matter how long ago you graduated, the, the feeling of survival persists and the ripple effects of it persist. Absolutely. Um, when I had longer hair, people used to always ask if I played Bob Odenkirk's assistant on um, oh, Better snap. Call Saul, and I would say no, but I adore the human that plays her. It's a brilliant performance, and I love it. it so is. there you go. It really is, and I and I want to talk a lot about Better Call Saul, but um, you went to SMU, which I did. Interviewed the current dean. I think he's the dean, Blake Hackler. Um, yeah, chair of um, acting, I think. Chair of acting. Okay, fantastic. I'm, I'm assuming you guys weren't never, there. No, You never crossed paths. But we've actually, he and I have crossed paths a bit professionally nowadays, yes, because we've done, we, Kitchen Dog has done a few of his new play readings because he's a playwright also. So he's he had at least two or three plays read in our New Works Festival, and he's always helped me out when I need recommendations for young people to come in oh. and read because, you know, we're all old at Kitchen Dog. <laughs> fantastic. Shout out to Blake. So, um, uh, SMU is a fantastic school. Did you always want to go there? Did you apply to a bunch of different places? How did you pick SMU? <laughs> well, it's kind of a ridiculous story. Um, I, um, my senior year of high school, you know, of course, like a lot of people went to theater school, you're all like, I'm the superstar at my high school. Like, all right, I get all the leads. I'm anti-mame and mame. You know, what a ridiculous. I just have to say, I was Agnes Gooch, and I, I was the Gooch. Were you Agnes? I was ma- I was anti-mame in the stage play version. Oh. Yes. I wa- yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> I was Agnes Gooch. I wanted to be anti-mame, but so uh, anyway, um, always, a go- always a Gooch, never a mame over here. But anyway, so tell us. So you were the star. Yeah, you know, like everybody who went to theater school, everybody was the star at their high school. But I, um, uh, my dad unfortunately had a stroke when I was a, um, and he was only, my parents are super young. And so he was 40, I don't know. So it was very unusual. It happened like at the beginning of my senior year. Um, and so my family was, it was all kind of chaotic. My senior was very chaotic. And I was also like the president of the drama club and, and we, you know, and all the people, you did all the competitions every weekend. And so it was just, there was a lot going on and my family stuff got into disarray because my dad ended up losing his job because he was sick for so long. And, and it was, so I screwed up. Like I missed a lot of applications. Um, I, I never, I didn't really was one of those where it just kind of snuck up on me and I didn't really know um, the places I wanted to go. I had missed like certain deadlines because of the fall. Um, 
And so I, SME was still one of the ones that was open. And so I did, was able to schedule an audition because you had to get into the school, but also, you know, get into the theater program. Like you could get into the school and not get in the theater program, you know, it is what it is. Um, luckily I still had time to do the audition. Um, so I did that. And then my grandmother literally walked my application through the admin, through the academic part, because something I had missed, I think. And my grandmother is very like, uh. I don't know. It's hard to say no to my grandmother. Um, so she went and they took this great care of her and she just kind of walked through and she's like, told the whole situation. And I mean, I had good grades. Like it wasn't, you know, like I, I did get in, I got scholarships and all this shit. Like I had, I had good grades. <laughs> so it wasn't like I was like, my grandmother did it, you know, but she did walk it through. Um, she's a thousand percent charmer. Um, and then the, as far as the audition goes, I was an hour late because I got lost. And then there's this weird horseshoe at SMU cause you know, go ponies or whatever bullshit that is. Um, there was no parking. And so I was like, got was super late and I was just like, just like so sweaty and like, you know, you, you everything's high drama when you're in high school. Right. So you're like, ah, this is my last chance to be a doctor. I'm going to have to work at the, you know fucking shoe store that I was working at or whatever it was forever. And so I would, I, after I became an actor, I was still working at the cheese store after I went to the, but the other thing I want to say is like, also your grandma sounds like charming, but also like she might be in the mob. Well, yeah, she's totally like, yeah. I mean, I don't know. She's, she's, she, she can get it done. Um, she's the wife of a Methodist minister too. So she, she, she knows how she can, she can read a person and figure out like, this is what you need, you know? And she's just sweet, like, you know, she's a charmer. But I ran into someone else's audition. Like, that's what I, I ran. And they, then the school, the school is all built. The school yes. is all built crazy. So if you don't know the school, you get lost. And I was like, went and I going in the wrong places. And I was an hour late. And I was like, yeah. and like, I literally like, this is it. And I opened the door and they're like, somebody's in there like, like doing the thing. And I'm like, oh my God. And they're like. You know, and I was like, and I was just like, oh, God. And so I go and sit in the room, and I just remember then coming in. I was like, I'm really sorry. You know, like, the kid was like, whoever, I don't think they got in. And they, I just remember them looking at me like, you know, and they left. And I was like, great, this is awesome. And then I go into my audition, which I chose the worst pieces, like the worst. Of course. Like, I think it was like, I can't even remember the name of the playwright, but it's like a really, really dramatic monologue from like Birdbath. You know, my head is not a hammer, like something ridiculous. And then I also chose to sing, which I'm not the greatest. I mean, I can sing. I can sing karaoke, but not like sing like I'm a musical theater actor. I, I, that's not me. Um, I think I chose sing like the something that nights on Broadway or some bullshit. Like, you know, the neon lights on, na, 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 on Broadway. Like ridiculous. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were like, luckily, <laughs> luckily. I did good in the interview part, and then they're like, "Turn your," they're like, "Turn your monologue into stand-up comedy." Oh wow! I never heard of that in audition. What a cool tactic! Well, and it was also I think they could tell that I was so freaked out and so nervous. But then that like the interview portion went great, and so they're like, you know, then they were like, "Hey, try like, play around with this," and then like the bad song that I had selected that I'd practiced with my cousin who could play guitar or something. Um, they're like do some dance moves with it. So I was just like, I don't dance, but I started doing these ridiculous things and they're like, yeah, good. They laughed. And you know, I, I think it also let me relax. They're like, you are crazy enough to be in theater school. (laughs) 
Wait, you guys, should we have a documentary series about people who are auditioning for theater school? Because honestly, like the stakes are so high for so many people. I bet there's one billion stories. I mean, yeah. some of which we've heard on, on, on the podcast, right, Boz? Yeah, I think we do. I think we do. And all the, I just remembered that in my monologue was from the play about the woman who traps the rapist in her house and puts him in a fireplace. Oh, the burning bed or whatever not the burning bed but yeah that, yeah um, yeah yeah and, and and it's 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 william master yes 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 and and, and she has a fire poker and she's oh, poking yeah. the rapist and i am 16 at the time oh, yeah. and i what and a virgin not that that really matters but like the whole thing is not good and why why did i do that but yet i got well, that's what this piece was the same thing it was so dark and so like this person is mentally ill and she's like i had there's not a hammer don't hit me man and you're just like what i'm like it would have been i mean i know this is terrible to say but what if they told me to turn that into stand-up like that would be dark 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 humor but any okay so you you clearly like what i love is that smu like knew how to take a teenager's anxiety and like shift it and so good on them those auditioners like good on them so you did that you did you walk out of there feeling like okay like it started off really wonky like me being late but like I have a chance or do they tell you when did they tell you I felt good like the when I after I left I was like okay you know like I wasn't sure like because I was like it was weird that they told me to change it to comedy but I think it was good you know and like I felt like the interview part went good and they were, at the time, my class, um, this was the first year that they they eliminated the cuts program. So what happened is they, instead, they had the act, BFA acting track, and then they had, well, what was proposed anyways, because they changed our, what our degree was, but it was supposed to be BA in theater studies. And so if you were interested in directing, you know, playwriting, whatever stage management tech whatever and then acting you could also have so you kind of chose focuses but that was it and it would have more of a little more academic focus um and so because before me the classes you everybody went in as an actor you did first two years and then they kind of just cut you basically and we're like you're in this free fall of like a program that wasn't really planned um yeah i mean like that's how our school was too and like half the people didn't end up graduating and it was a racket and now they don't do it anymore but that was a huge yeah they stopped my year okay so so was it that the people that maybe weren't get, getting into the acting program went to theater studies is that how it was proposed i think that's what they were trying to do i think they were also trying to figure out a way or they were trying some people left um i think they were also trying to keep their numbers up and i think they also had people who were like hey we're i'm an actor but i'm also a director why can't you make get me some classes here you know like I want to have the class if you're going to cut me that's fine but like I'm interested in these things too can there be a program and so they kind of were building that program like they had it out there you know and that when they took our class we had very set paths of like and we had the same two years together as a group soft freshman and sophomore year and then we split into our kind of disciplines um and they kind of still like when I was when we were juniors kind of like here's some things and we're like okay but our class was kind of a hard ass and we're like where's our where's our where's this class where's that so we were always in the office saying no this this like afterthought of a class this shit doesn't fly and you know i'm going to direct a main stage or i want to direct a studio and they're like oh and they're like no this is how it's going to work <laughs> 
So, like, yeah, me and Tim and Tim, who actually is one of my coworkers at Kitchen Dog, uh, and then a couple other folks were pretty... I think we turned the, the chair at the time's hair white because we would go in there and be like, no, this isn't going to work. You just you just made me realize that our, this all the schools who had cut programs who didn't have another track to go into after we're missing out on such a revenue stream, right? Like our, at our school, yeah. all the people who got cut, like went to this other college. And I'm thinking, what, what, when was the meeting where somebody goes, Oh my God, you guys, we should just have something here for them to do instead of sending them to another school. That's hilarious. Well, and I think too, they find like, you know, like that there's kids that truly have talent for, you know, like a playwright or director, but then they're also really good actors, which I think, you know, I think it's really good for people who are like, I am primarily like, I'm a mix. Tim, I would say, who my coworker is, is primarily a director, but but it's great for both of us to go through acting. You know, like that's been that's. What I'm noticing is like there's no like our school had no foresight into anything, so it was like they didn't. So that's a problem in a in a university. Yeah, it it, huge problem. So okay, so at your school, what was your experience like on stage? The star were you? And then oh okay, and then and then my other follow up question is. The follow-up question is, you're launching into the professional world. What did your school do or not do to prepare you? And what was your departure like into, like, okay, now you're 22, live your life. Bye. Um, I would say for, um, I was kind of a mix. Like, I had a lot of opportunities while I was there and some self-created as far as directing opportunities. And we had an interesting system of, like, there was a studio theater and we were able to have, we had this studio system, which a lot of non-majors would come and see plays because they were required, blah, blah, blah. But so we got to direct a lot, you know, and, and Tim really fought and he got to direct a main stage. And, and I was, I was my senior year. I, I was a lead in a play, you know, like just all sorts of things. Like we, I had a lot of great opportunities at SMU. I think um, I had some, also had some good teachers and directors while I was there. So when I was a junior, you know, they had Andre DeShields in to, to, as a guest artist, which really stirred the pot because he was not about like, let's talk about your objectives. Let's talk. Let's really do some table work. Like he was like, why aren't you funny? I don't get that shit. Like, go, go out. Why aren't you funny like this? Or come up with some, some dancing or whatever, you know, he was awesome. Like, I loved it. Like, cause we were doing funny thing happen on the way to the forum. I was one of the, you know, concubines or whatever the dancing, I was Tintinabula, the bell, the, supposed to be a clock, like a, a bell ringer, you know, like sexy dancer. And he said I reminded him of some lady he lived with in Amsterdam. So instead, I was a clogger and had bells and had giant hair that went out to here. And yeah, and so he was like, he was great. Like, and but it really gave you the experience. It makes a lot of people crazy because he was like not interested in their process. What he was interested in was like results and like hitting your marks and like, you know, like he had sent me away and he's like, come up with 16 beats to that end. I want to see something funny. And so I came back in and did it. And he was like, yes, you know, like it was, it was awesome. Like he would, he would really was a real collaborator. That's fantastic. And, and actually I'm so glad you told that story because, and I, I, I won't, I want you to get back to launching and everything, but the thing about the Andre de Shield story that you just told I can see why you like that because that seems like you, a person who has the training and the gravitas and whatever to like take their craft very seriously. But at the end of the day, you're there to entertain and get the job done, right? Like you don't, you're not so precious about your own self, which is really interesting. No. And I mean, it was, it was so important. I think just because, you know, like everywhere you, everywhere you go, like, you know, 
you don't always have work at the same place and everybody's process and everybody's way of rehearsal or whatever is wildly, wildly different. And so I thought it was great because, you know, you're not going to go always walk into someplace where they're going to coddle you or, or, or take the time or whatever, you know, like it's different. The other thing is that like we, what I just hit me is that we've interviewed a ton of people and I'm trying to like think about like what does a conservatory do wrong is I think they forget that it's about entertainment like there becomes such a focus on process and inner work what about the fucking entertainment value of like entertaining the audience like that goes out the window which is why the shit is not funny (laughs) most of the time because it's like so serious you're like no this is a fucking farce like make people laugh and it's like I love that that you're you remind me of a, like an entertainer, and I I feel like I needed entertainment <laughs> conservatory. Not well, I would say that, that I mean like I still use a lot of the training that I used at SMU, like like at, at Kitchen Dog. I mean, this was founded by SMU grads, so you know a lot of the doing table work and talking about what you want and all that kind of stuff like that is definitely part of what we do. But what was cool about Andre and I love Andre De Shields with all my heart, like was that. You found a way to make your process work in his framework, and and he got results. Like the sh- our show was funny as hell. Like in, the sing- singing was great, the dancing was great, um, and it looked great because the Eckharts did the costumes and all the sets, and it felt like we were in a professional show. Like it was it was exciting and fun to do. Um, so I thought it was a great way to kind of get ready for what it was going to be like because i remember auditioning for the show and he was like where's your headshot and we're like nobody told us and he's like this is an audition why don't you have i don't understand why you don't have a headshot and you're just like oh god like and it was embarrassing you know and then he was like all right i want to do that he's doing some improv things in that in the thing and people couldn't get like people were like uh, 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 and he's like just jump in man <laughs> and he was like fantastic and you know you get a call back and you're like okay i see how this works um, so that was great. And we also had a lady named Eve Roberts, same thing. She was pretty brutal, too, in that, you know, if you weren't ready to go, she wasn't going to baby you. So she would just basically be like, you're, oh, so you don't know your lines? Sit the fuck down. Sit down. Who's ready to work? Because it was an audition class. And she was a film actor with a lot of experience. And it was auditions for both film and, and stage. But she, if you weren't ready, but if you were ready, she would work you out like you would get a great workout you'd leave with a great monologue and so i was like always be prepared for that you know, you know like that because she will she will she will get you if you're not honestly it really sounds like smu did a much better job than most most of what we hear about in terms of like getting real working actors and, and it's a tough thing I, I you know i don't really blame any school that does it it's a tough thing if it's a working actor then they're working and they don't have time to like commit to the the, the school right. teaching no, schedule but at the same time like if you don't have any of that then you are really you're experiencing all that on the job, which you know, which is fine too. But it sounds like SNU did a better job of preparing for you, preparing you for a career. I would say somewhat, yeah. I mean, there are things that I, you know, as as I entered life, because I was of the mind when I when I graduated, I was really torn about whether or not to go to grad school or not, um, and I really didn't know because I really. I, and I still, to this day, have a split focus. Like, I act and direct um, both in the, you know, in the theater. Like, I do both. Uh, um, so I wasn't sure which way I wanted to go, and you really had to decide to go to grad school. So I was like, you know, I'm going to take a year off, is what I decided. 
Um, and I waited tables, lived life, you know, whatever. <laughs> Didn't even really do any theater or stuff. But I tended to like work back at SMU. So like they would have me come back and like I would sub in and um, cover like Del Moffat, who was the man who was the auditioner who auditioned me originally and his improv class. Like I'd come in and do uh, cover him for a month if he went on sabbatical, you know, stuff like that. Or like and I directed a couple of main stages there. That was it. Um, so I just decided end up I started working more in Dallas uh, and end up just staying in Dallas. Dallas was not what I plan where I planned to stay. <laughs> Like, I kept in my mind, you know, thinking, like, I'm going to move to Chicago. Like, that was my dream, was living in Chicago. Um, and because, I guess, I'm a Taurus and stubborn and lazy, I don't know, um, sometimes you just start working and you're like, nah, I'll just stay here. I'm working and I can kind of do what I want. And then I got an agent and I was like, oh, there's this part of it. You know, like, I think in 95 or whatever, you know, because I graduated in 91. Um, so you just start working and then it's like, why do I want to go and start over? And it was just kind of a hard thing to do. Do I have regrets sometime about not doing? Absolutely. Like sometimes I look back and I'm like, ah, man. But as far as just preparing, I think it's just hard to get prepared. Cause I think like, I wish I left with like, and they're doing this now, which is great, but like left with more of like, what's, um, you know, good, what's a good headshot? What's what, what, you know, how do you walking into a room? How do you handle it? You know, like there's certain things, um, that I feel like they could train, uh, and give you a little bit more experience, life experience in it. But I think they have some new. I know they have, I know they have film acting now, a little bit of film acting stuff there, which is always good just because that's how a lot of people make money. I'm I'm happy to say because we've ha- we've had this conversation so many times with people about the way that schools didn't prepare you. Somebody's been getting the message about this. My son is in high school and he goes to this like auxiliary performing arts program. It's like half day his regular high school and half day this, and he does a seminar once a week on the business of music, and you know what what kind of jobs you're going to have to do to keep you know to pay the rent while you're waiting yeah. between gigs. Like it's very brass tack. So so the message has gotten through thankfully. Yeah. The business is important, man. That's how you survive. I mean, let's be real. I mean, like that's, and it's not easy. Like if you're like, if you're going to, I mean, there's sure there's two or three unicorns every so often, but for the most part, you're going to have to wait tables or cobble together a bunch of odd jobs or couple, you know, like all these little, like I'm a, I'm going to do the Aesop's fables in the, in the elementary schools for three weeks or whatever, you know, like, and how do you make rent? You know, like that's, it's not glamorous for sure. So what was the journey from graduating to founding Kitchen Dog with your classmate? I actually am not a founder. Um, so Kitchen Dog was founded by five SMU MFA students who were in the MFA program when I was an undergrad. Um, so, I ain't, so I ain't that old. Thank God. Um, but uh, they founded it in 90. I did their first show in 91, which I saw. It was above a... A pawn, it was above a pawn shop in Deep Ellum with no air conditioner in May. It was very hot and fantastic. You know, Maria Fu- Irene Fornes' mud. It was great. Um, and so I did my first show with them in 93, so a few years after I graduated, which Tim, my classmate, directed. He had come back. He was in Minnesota at the time. Um, and then I just worked with Kitchen Dog ever since. So I became a company member in 96, started working for the company as like an admin producer type person in 99 and then became co-artistic director when the founding AD left in 2005. So I've been here forever. 
I do yeah. not have children. I say that Kitchen Dog is my grown, mean child. Your grown, mean? Did you say mean? <laughs> yeah, I did say mean sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it's very, you know, temperamental. Yeah, that's fine. That's, I mean, yeah, it's probably yeah. still better than kids. I'm just saying. Anyway, um, <laughs> so, I mean, I don't have any, so. Uh, but, uh, what, okay, so what do you, this is what I always want to ask people who have um, long-standing careers in theater and especially when they are co-artistic director or artist director why do you do it and why do you love it that's a really good question I mean it varies from time to time I mean I think that I you know Kitchen Dog has one of its tenets has always been about asking you know we do we do I hate the word edgy but we do edgier plays we do plays that are very much um talking about the world around us challenging you know, and we're in Texas. It's, a, you know, sort of purple state now. Kind of exciting. Purple parts, at least Dallas is. Um, hopefully this election goes that way. Um, uh, so, you know, it's we, I feel like our place in the Dallas zeitgeist is important because, you know, we're not doing... There are a lot of people that do traditional plays and do them well, you know, like straight ahead, you know, musicals or, you know, The Odd Couple or whatever. Um, notice this gesture, The Odd Couple. Um and doing great, but we do new. We do newer plays. We're a founding member of the National New Play Network, um, and so that's kind of kept it relevant and kept it exciting. The work exciting to me. I love working with new plays and new ideas. And we have a company of artists, some of which went to SMU. Um, and I, I think I've stayed here this long because, you know, I feel like I can. I, I do. I am able to do the kind of work I want to do. I'm able to choose the plays I want to be in or um, direct, um, uh, and I feel like they're important for my community. And when that becomes that it's not that, then I need to leave or step down. Is my is my feeling? I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, so many people say that that they that they they keep their allegiances to theater companies because it's it's often the work that they really you know f- feel moves them is very you know, is very inspiring. But then you also got the opportunity to do a very good part in something that was commercial, which is um, Breaking Bad. So could you tell us anything about um, your how, how you were born into that sure. project? Sure. The, um, I, you know, I got an agent, uh, did, you know, I had no experience, no resume. So you did the couple of walk on, you know, like I'm in the back of a bank commercial, fantastic, or whatever, $50. I love it. Um, uh, did that and lucked into Robert Altman came to town and did a very terrible movie called Dr. T and the Women, but it was a fantastic experience. And I was one of the nurses and I was on set every day, pretty much. So he's told me, he told us, he's like, I'll make you a lot of money. You're not going to be seen a lot. You'll be here every day. And we got out by five and I was able to do plays at night. Like it was, it was chef's kiss the best because you just kind of learned from the master like he is a he's truly was a master god rest his soul anyway um so i started auditioning more did some walkers because everybody does walk did walker back in the time walker texas ranger it's like the Um, er we all did the er in the uh, early edition in chicago that was my so walker same thing i love a good walker by the way texas ranger so ridiculous yeah I think one of my lines in a, one of the episodes I was in was like you won't put this on your lady friends tabs like it was so country anyway um, it was terrible uh, but so with the Breaking Bad thing I um, I read the sides that it actually was the, the person who was casting 
locals or whatever, not locals, because it was shooting in New Mexico, but it was a woman named Tony Cobb Brock um, who was casting in Dallas. And uh, so we got the sides. I got the call to come in and audition for it. I read it and I was like, you know, and this is a story I've told a lot, but it's the truth, which is I read it and I was like, it's going to be a blonde, big boobs woman. Like, that's what I thought when I read it. I was like, it's going to be this, that's what it's going to be, because there were a lot of jokes about boobs and you're killing me with that booty. Like, there was a lot more to that scene, my first scene. There was a lot more. So I was like, whatever. I was like, it's not, I'm, you know, I'm a plus size lady. I have brown hair. I have a, you know, deep voice, like, oh, well. So I was like, well, how do I feel good in? So <laughs> I just wore... I remember I wore this Betsy Johnson dress that I was kind of into Rockabilly Swing at the time. This Betsy Johnson little dress with apples. It was real sexy. And this little shrug and had my hair kind of fancy. And I was like, I'm wearing this. I don't give a shit. So I, I was like, I feel good in this. Who cares? Um, so I walked in and there were a bunch of ladies that were blonde and had professional lady outfits on. And I was like, oh shit, I should have dressed like a secretary. Why did I dress like this? Oh, damn. And I was like, okay, well, whatever. It's, you're not, you're not going to book this. So who cares? Um, went in, I had a great audition, made Tony laugh and you know, it was what it was. And so I went away and I didn't hear anything for a while. So I was like, oh, I didn't book that. Oh, well. And I was sitting in an audition for some commercial and I never book commercials. Um, I just don't cause I look one way and then my voice comes out and they're like, no, no, you can't play the young mom because you seem like Janine Garofalo or something. Um, so <laughs> your bite and smile is scary, ma'am. So I was waiting in the waiting in the waiting room, and my agent calls, or I got paged, or you know, because it was that lo- so long ago. Um, and she was like, "Can you be on a plane in three hours?" And luckily, I wasn't doing a play at the time. <laughs> uh, and I said, "Yeah, I can." And she's like, "Well, they, you booked it. You, you should go." And so you should go home and pack and go to Southwest Airlines. And that was the story. And so I get there and, you know, whatever, found out that, you know, it's Bob Odenkirk and start losing my mind and all this stuff. Um, but what's crazy is, <laughs> you know, it's a crazy story. And then on the, when in season four finale of Breaking Bad, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it, but you're, you're end, late. Like, if you haven't watched it, like it's you know, that's like, on you. <laughs> Please watch it because I need mama needs to keep getting residuals because she's, yeah. you know, not. Yeah. But um, that final episode where I have a great scene with Brian Cranston, um, there's a there was a pod, insider podcast which I wasn't aware of, but they talked to Vince about you know oh who's she and how did you cast her you know because it's my first like actual scene you know like where I don't have, I have more than two lines, and he tells the story of like and this I just love this story which is like basically he'd seen a lot of people that he didn't think was right he wanted something, they kept showing him the same type and he was like no I, I it needs to be something different he's a different kind of guy I wanted somebody who'd challenge him you know different looking, and the casting woman who had. Kira, um, I can't remember her last name, but she had, you know, I'd, I'd auditioned for her a few times, been put on tape. I don't know that I necessarily booked anything. And she's like, well, there is this one girl. I think she's great. She's probably not right. I think physically she's probably, I don't think she's right, but do you want to see? And so he showed her and he's like, that's exactly what I want. And then I booked it. Um, and so it's crazy. So you just never know. I mean, I think that's the, I think that's the walk away. Okay. This is a, this is the craziest thing. This is crazy. So, I booked a show in New Mexico called Perpetual Grace. Kira cast it. And Kira showed me to Steve Conrad, 
who's the showrunner, and James Whitaker, who was directing the episode. I looked nothing like the other people. My agent, Casey, called me and said, can you get on a plane in three hours? There you go. New Mexico. Same casting director. Same. Go we Kira. The same go Kira. Person. Getting all these people. Go anyway, Kira. So, go, Kira I love it. Me. Well, and it's like that thing, you know, like, you, you know, I think that's always the big takeaway, right? Is, is, and, you know, and I, I, I think I read this, not to feel like I'm fucking name dropping, I'm not, but like I've read this, I think in Brian's book too, but like the, the thing is, is like you, all you can do is just like, just they're calling you in for a reason. So you just have to say like, what is it in me? What's unique about me? That's this role. And then lean into it and go for it in that regard, because that's all you got. Like the soon as you start, and I find myself doing this, I have to keep yeah. reminding myself, you know, to do this, which is I'll read something like, Oh, it's this and try to play to what I think it is. Versus like, no, what is it in me that's this? And that's the thing. I book when I do that. When I try to do the other thing, yeah, you know. Totally. And you start getting in your own head. All the time on here. God. By the way, regarding name dropping, I never understand why anybody gets upset about that. It's like, well, they're people that you know. The people that you work with are people in your life. I mean, you're just saying their name. (laughs) It's not like you're clout chasing. But anyway, that's inside. Girl, walk me back. (laughs) <laughs> to this day where you take three hours to get on the airplane. I want to know how fast did you have to rush home to pack? What did you do? Did you have enough stuff? What was it like when you were on the airplane? Did you order a drink because you felt so fancy? Tell us everything. Well, all I know is I had a bag and I got, I ran home. I had a roommate at the time, thank God. And I just said, can you feed my cat? Cause I had, I had a cat at the time. I said, like, please feed Loretta. Um, and so I got this bag and just threw, it was really like just, stuff thrown in and I was like do I need to bring the dress and shoes that I wore that so I brought the whole outfit because I was like because the jobs some of the jobs I'd been on I had to bring my own shit or whatever you know you have to bring your whole wardrobe and be like oh you want none of this great I'll put it all back in my car um so I just threw that in there and then I just threw some random I don't even know what I packed and you know ran to the airport got on the plane I think I did have a Jack and Coke because I was just like I'm so freaked out in the plane. Of course, you know, you're going to New Mexico, so you're going over those mountains, and you're just like, okay, I'm going to die also. Great. But I don't want to die. I just booked a big job or whatever. Um, and then I remember the landing and getting in the van thing, and they took me straight to the hotel. And I, I remember opening, because back then, they you know, you would get, like, your sides in an envelope like that in the in the later years that shit ne- never you never got printed stuff ever because people would steal it and whatever else um so i remember pulling it out and seeing bob's name and freaking out because <laughs> i was a huge mr show fan and i was just like oh my god oh my god and i just remember calling my fr- i have a friend aaron ginsburg who's kind of an la hollywood dude or whatever and i was like Oh my god! Oh my god! And he's like, "Thanks for the spoiler." And I was like, "Oh shit! I'm not supposed to tell people." And I was like, "But I'm freaking out." And he's like, "No, no, it's okay. I will tell no one." I was like, "Don't tell anyone. I don't want to get fired." Um, but yeah, so I just remember sitting there and freaking out and trying to look at my lines and, you know, what am I? Oh god! And then going there with my cl- my little bag of dresses or whatever. And they're like, "We don't want any of this crap." They're whatever. like, "This is a high budget show. We got we got costumes yeah. covered." Well, and I, we'll back then, I don't. <laughs> I know. Back then, I don't know if they were that high budget, but it was interesting to me. The one thing is, is just how involved um, the showrunners of that show, 
Peter and well, uh, Vince at the time, and then later Peter and Vince. But like, they have a color palette. They have where they want the characters to go. Like, I had you know that it got really pared down. I ended up having like you know just a few lines. But they took so many pictures, different outfits, different setups, and like different color tones. Like just setting what they wanted um, for my character, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Or whatever. And they were everybody was so not, and everybody was so I mean, nice and friendly. It, it, and it's really remember your name to hear, so and good. I'm glad you talked about it. I'm in a, I'm I'm in the rainstorm, so sorry. But like, um, it's so weird to be. I'm in the Midwest right now, and I live in LA. So coming back here, I'm like, "What is that noise? It's fucking fucked up, and it's the fucking rain." Anyway, so what is so beautiful about this story to me is that. Even if we feel small, right, like uh, uh, whatever, these people who are creating these iconic shows have such vision. There is literally no small character like these are their children and they have arcs. They have. So it just makes me appreciate as creators, as artists, how much time, love, energy goes into characters and storylines and then we see maybe maybe if we're lucky one eighth of it but just know like the shit matters right like a thousand percent and that's the same thing with like it's the same thing with robert altman i mean like we were you know he you know i got to be part of one of those mass his signature long tracking shots right he he would walk in the room and be like okay what's going on in here so what are you guys doing what are you what's happening and i was like well we're this that and he's like great keep that and when i come across i want you to be in this moment you know so like he's like tina are things like where he's following on my shoulder and tina i need you to do this and this is what's happening and i try i'm just gonna think about some lines just throw these out you know it was just i don't know and that's the same thing with vince and with peter like they were really like what is she wearing why is she wearing this where are you like you know what's going on and like and they were like the scripts were so good it was like you had to be letter perfect but it was like oh it's a lot of improv and i'm like Not no right. but it also it sounds no. like theater the attention to to detail and the and the sort of like the vision and the way that and you, it, that just comes through in the best series the auteurs you, you know that they've thought about and they all right, love right, theater. right yeah right they all yeah. love theater they so all do I, you, a bit ago you said something about how the like lustiness that um, saw you know Jimmy feels for Francesca d- didn't you know n- necessarily a lot of that didn't necessarily make it into at least your first episode but it got revisited in Better Call Saul and I really appreciated that because I was like oh yeah I, w- I would have wanted to see more of that you know I, w- I wanted to see more of that like lusty <laughs> dynamic but you had an Oh. Well, it's just funny because it's funny because I was just going to say it's funny because like actually in Breaking Bad, he would say all sorts of like rude, like honey tits and and, you know, you're killing me with that booty is our first scene. And he and I remember later when we were in Better Call Saul, he was like, I just this guy would say these things. And so they had to figure out the segue because it's like, well, you go there, buddy. Like we, we've already shot all that stuff. Yeah. So we had to figure out how to get there. <laughs> right, right, right. That's funny. So you have an opportunity that not a lot of actors get to have, which is to revisit a character. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, if I had to go back and do it all over again, you know, after I watch my performance, I, I might have done this or that. Did you have anything like that? Because you got a lot more screen time in Better Call Saul, I, I think. Um, did you was there any was there anything that you were super excited to bring in to the, the next iteration of your character? You know, I'll just say this, like, I think because of the scripts. The scripts were so good. Um, it, what was really fun for me 
was getting to play before she turned, like before she got vampire. I was just say before she got vampire bit by by greed and and Saul. Um, the she was so sweet and like just how they explored that in the beginning, like that for the first season I was back, I got to do eight episodes, which was rad. And it was, and I was just really so sweet and it was all in the scripts. And like, then, the, you know, then you go to the costume, go to your fittings and it's like, I'm in pinks and flowers. And like one of the shirts, like Vince is like, I love this shirt cause it has birds. And I'm like, how do you like, <laughs> like, it's just crazy that you're looking and you see that my shirt has birds or whatever. And you picked it because it has birds on it. Um, so that was what was super fun for me is just finding the beginning of it. And then because I was off a couple seasons, like then finding, you know, the one time I came back was like, Oh, we're closing the office. Like, how do you get from that to this? Um, and luckily the writing helped a ton, but then just making that segue of, you know, what, what would have to happen to get the there? The best <laughs> is in better call Saul is when you see her, decorating the office and it's so at the at first and it's so beautiful and and refined and elegant and and then in your mind you're going but this is not what the office looks like right and to see that journey was so satisfying for a fan yeah you know so satisfying to we see were how just we got jo- there <laughs> i just remember joking with ray because we all came in and we're like wow because like in life it was just so like look at all these lavenders and all these patterns. And, and I was like, yeah, it's, I was like, girl, it's like she got all of her Tuesday morning and, and Bed Bath & Beyond coupons and went to town. Like she says, I need this many dollars. And then she just got all the water, like got everything she, she could get for that. Called, in her, cu- called her cousin in to do some woodwork or whatever. Um, and it's just, you know, she, because I, I think that's, that's the thing. And that's why she became what she became. This job became her life, you know. And she, you know, she, <laughs> always on call, always on call. Her journey, I think, is so relatable. And um, it's relatable and also super um, com- makes, for me, a commentary. Like, I was an assistant to a movie star. So, like, I know the turn that I took when I did that from being like super Midwestern and like, oh my God, we're like going to make good movies to, oh my God, I'm literally probably doing something illegal for my boss right now. And I sort of don't give a fuck. And um, it's just very relatable in a human being to see someone um, be, like you said, like, like bitten by the greed bug, but also like the things and I think this is what the series does too. The lengths to which we go to to get what we want at all costs, and the shit is not black and white. Like, like I love it. So I, I just I'm really appreciative of your character's journey and the writing on that show. And it just makes my heart sing to know that like the details are thought about and people give a shit when they're making art. Still, thank God. Oh yeah. A thousand percent. And that's the thing, too, with that cast, like with with Brian and Aaron and those guys at Breaking Bad. But then also like, you know, with Ray and Bob and Giancarlo and those guys like they they're all like, can we run lines? Can we talk? Let's talk about what we want. What's going on? What are other possibilities? And, and, And really just present like like that was the thing is like I've worked now a few 
you know, I'm that guy that, like, if I'm lucky, like, right now I'm kind of having a dry spell. Uh, but, like, you know, you get to job in and you're, like, you're there for a day or you're there for two days or whatever. Um, and it's not always, you know, like, the hap- like it's not like, oh, it's great. Like, you just go in, you do your thing, and you split or whatever. But the thing with these guys is, like, they really are about the about the story and about what's happening and about making the best thing and that's true from and it starts from them down so like even like the kid person who's like your PA you know at the dressing rooms like they're into it and they're like hey you know I saw you do this you know like it, it's awesome yeah like it's just an awesome it makes everybody it was an aw- really great experience is both shows it makes everybody invested right like the, when when the quality is really high and people at the top and the bottom are taking it very seriously it just makes it gives everybody it it it, um projects the message to everybody like oh no no we're taking this very seriously this is not just a job for us like we're we're, this is actually what we got into this industry for most of us to you know create something what i hear also is like the the spirit of fucking collaboration for god's sake like I walk on set now if there is not a spirit of collaboration i'm like oh no 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 i'm gonna go work at the ampm because at least there and i've done many of those jobs where it's like there is like forced collaboration in those settings so like on sets now and i'm like a total under 10 day player situation but like you can tell yeah and you can tell though when People fucking care. So I now, uh, I now, when I walk on a set, you get the vibe of like, oh, this is like a a, um, a Dick Wolf thing where nobody cares about the day players, or oh shit, there's a spirit of collaboration here. How can I, how can I participate even as an under ten and still get my and feel good about it? And I think as I get older, those are the sets I want to be a part of. I mean, you just. Or else I'm going to do another job. Like, I, I don't know. But 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 um, my question is also, are you sad? It's over. How do you feel? Oh, about yeah. Okay. I mean, okay. for sure. I mean, it was, you know, it's it's one of those things you finish and you're like, oh, crap, we're done. And I didn't I didn't take very many pictures. And, oh, I didn't get to see this person on my last day or, you know, like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sad. It's over. It's one of those things that, you know, plus it was great. It was great to have that knowing that it could always come back and like. Make you make your SAG insurance minimum, right? There you right? go, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, now you're kind of like, what's your next gig? Ooh, I don't know. I always think about that when people are on amazing no, okay. shows. Like, it, it's such a, it's like bittersweet because there's this thought of like, oh man, what, I might never be in anything like this again. As great as it was, as you know, for as long as it lasted, residuals, whatever, but like, it, it's just, and it's just, and it's what we all get into it for. It's like a magical feeling. It's a feeling of that we're like connecting and vibing and, and sharing something very human and personal, but in a heightened, beautiful way. That's interesting. To look and, at. The, and the other thing I, you know, in the interest of time, I want to ask you like, so, okay, so you're in a dry spell. That's not going to last. That's fucking life, all that bullshit. But like, what do you want to do? Like what's happening with your theater company? What's happening with like, I, I, I mean, we're around the same age, so it's like, what do you, what do you, I'm like obsessed with this idea of like, and maybe people don't give a shit about this, but I do about like legacy. Like when, what is your, what do you want to do? What's happening? Yeah. Well, I'm um, actually this week, <laughs> I've been directing a play. So this week is tech week for me. So uh, that's why I'm kind of like, uh, um, so we have tech this weekend. Uh, for, uh, we're doing the regional premiere of The Sound Inside by Adam Rapp, which is a beautiful little play, two-hander. Um and working with another classmate of mine uh, who is part of our company. We have a company of actors, directors, playwrights, 
at, kitch- at Kitchen Dog. Not all SMU people, but a mi- assorted mix of folks. But she happens to be an SMU person. Um, and it, that play has a younger guy in it who's about to graduate from UNT, um, University of North Texas. And what's great is being around that youth, too. So you're kind of like, wow, I remember what it's like to be 22 and about to graduate and thinking I'm going to, you know, move to California with my girlfriend and do whatever. You know, like that's kind of that's kind of wild and fantastic or whatever. Um, so for me, I, you know, in our theaters, we were we just bought a We bought a building in 2016. Yeah, crazy. We bought a building in 2016. We had enough money to buy it. Um, but not enough money to renovate it. Um, and of course we started capital campaign, then COVID came, of course. Uh, and so then we end up with the money we had raised, just paying off the loan we had, ta- we had taken off a bridge loan to, to get the building. So we paid it off. So we own this building outright. Now it looks like we have enough to start renovations, at least in our minds. <laughs> we think we do. We're in the, we're hiring general contractors right now. So, uh, that's the big thing that's about to happen is that, you know, we're going to start renovating this building, this 10,000 square foot warehouse. Um, which is good and it's scary too, you know, like, uh, I think because as most theater people will say, the audience, you know, yeah, theater's back, but the audiences aren't. Um, I think a lot of people found other shit to do during the pandemic, uh, and all of the press dried up. So now it's trying to one lure the people who were coming back, um, and being like, come on, you want to get off your couch? I promise you'll like it or whatever. Uh, but then, you know, where do you get the new folks? And so the idea of opening a building is a little scary because you're like, is it if we build it, you will come? I hope so. I don't know. Um, but that's one of the things because, I mean, I've been with Kitchen Dog for so long. Like, I do want, I mean, that is part of my legacy, if you want to say that. I feel like I've made some good plays, both as an actor, as a director, as an artistic director. I feel like we've done some really quality work. Um, I feel like we've, fostered a lot of talent and a lot of talent that's went on to bigger things in other communities because that's the other thing and we're in Dallas like so keeping talent here sometimes is hard but I do feel like some of the talent that we've had and we've fostered on our stages whether it's playwrights or um, actors like a lot of people have went on to success so that's great Um, as far as a film person I mean you know like I don't know I just you know who wouldn't want to be on like be on a show and have like a regular gig. Like, I, I don't know, like who wouldn't want to be in a cool movie with the Coen brothers or, you know, something or being a really great indie film. Like, I don't know. I'm right, at this point I'm like, yeah, I just you just want to work. work. You just want to act. You so, just want to um, be, be doing it. Yeah. Because you get like, yeah, just because like, I, I, I don't know if this is y'all's experience, but like, I always feel like I start to get rusty and also start to start to get a little out of joint. Like, cause when you're in the groove and you're working and, and then you're auditioning, like, there's a confidence, there's a, there's a way you approach the audition that you're like, yeah, yeah, this, that. And then when you haven't booked in a little bit and you've done a few auditions and you're like, oh, then you start doing that weird thing of like, what do they right. want? And that's when you start fucking well, yourself, I, basically. I, you know, people always, speaking of Brian Cranston, like, people always talk about the Brian Cranston speech where he talks about, you know, the auditioning is the job, then you throw the script away. And, 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 and yeah. that's great. However... It's a lot easier to do when you're always auditioning. So when it's like people and when you're like, you know, I'll be honest, like I'm a Latina plus size lady at 47. And like he's a white dude who's already now famous. So it's much easier said than done. And I just call it like it is. But but he's right in that you cannot make 
the outcome of the thing, right? However, it's great. No, because you'll, you'll go lose crazy. your mind and be a bad actor. It's bad all around. You'll lead to depression, and you know you'll need medication and, and all those things. So, but but what what I do love is the idea of like not staying rusty. So, uh, cre- for me, what that means is finding outlets, whether it's acting or writing or a class or whatever. So, do you do you find that your work with Kitchen Dog like helps you stay like not get out of joint? Is that one of the reasons that you don't just say fucking? I'm going to do full time because you could you could say like, look, dude, I just came off Breaking Bad. Fuck this shit. I'm going to just focus on that. But does the kitchen, the kitchen dog must serve a different purpose as well. Right. Like, staying- yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, I love the thing is, is I still really love the theater. <laughs> I still really love it. Like, I, I do love film. I'm not going to I mean, I do love that medium and I love that, you know, it makes you it, you're, <laughs> it pays a lot more than the theater, unfortunately. Um, but I love theater. I love the, like, love that connection to the audience being in the room with, you know, and hearing the, just, just the liveness of it and the fact that it could change at any moment, the, you know, just that's not, you can never have that in film. Um, and so I, I, I think it's a good balance for me because I, you know, like, and that's one of the reasons I haven't left Dallas is because I still really love the theater. Um, I have thought about it for sure. Like I've thought about like, Oh, you know, if I'm going to do it, is this the time to do it, to try it? Um, and then it's like, Oh, well, you know, like that thing of like, do you want to look back and have regrets or whatever? And I'm like, I, I I just don't know, you know, like (laughs) maybe it's the same thing of like, I'm Taurus and I'm stubborn and I'm going to stay stuck down here or whatever. Um, but I don't know. I, I've thought about it more the past, past few years, you know, like, should I, is this the time to go? And, but here's the other, my other thing is like, maybe the thing that keeps you working is actually doing both. Like, so like maybe the juice is, and the gold is, you might not have one without the other is what I'm thinking, but it doesn't mean that you can't do more. But anyway, I think there's some magic uh, alchemy that is literally happening because of Kitchen Dog leading to... I would say, yeah, I would say, I would say absolutely. And I think it. there's definitely things like we've talked about with whether it's um, theater school or theater, whatever it is, you know, like I feel like there's some in the training that makes it when you get the script that you're able to quickly break it down and come up with like, here's a backstory or here's this. And that kind of is, you know, I feel like I have some tools that I can use that, you know, maybe somebody who doesn't have the training, Yeah. you know, but there were a 1 million questions that I did not get a chance to ask you before we ran out of time. So maybe someday you'll come back and do a part two, but I could talk to you for hours. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Thank you. Ah, Thanks, thank man. You. Thank you. You, you know what? You're giving me hope for theater and for film. And also it's just really important for people. I think myself, if no one else to hear that, like, all the shit is important creatively that, that we do. And and I don't think you a lot of us theater people would have the life we have if we didn't commit to the theater a long time ago. I think that's right. It, so. Absolutely. Yeah. And not, not lose your mind on those self-tapes because, you know, it's real, it's real easy to do. I've been going down that rabbit hole of like, this tape was good. This tape was good. I don't understand why. Although not for nothing <laughs> about rejection. Like I, I, you know, yes, it's important to have a healthy relationship with it, whatever. But at the same time, it's like saying it's, 
what I think sometimes people who maybe who, who aren't actors don't realize about it is telling us to get over it or move on is like saying, you know, oh yeah, it's the, your favorite thing in the world to do. It's absolutely the best you ever feel in life. There's no better sensation than being on a great project. But when you don't get it, just don't think about it. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. easier said than done. Yeah, they're lost. Right. Yeah, Thank easier you, said Tina. than done. <laughs> Bye, you guys. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you. Thank you.